0: Thank you for coming to church today. I get emails all the time talking about how, after this pandemic thing, church numbers have gone down in terms of attendance dramatically. But now what's starting to come out is numbers that are saying the number of people who profess to be Christians is dropping down dramatically. There's a connection there. So thank you for being here. Thank you for working on and being willing to grow in your faith. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us. I want to give a shout out to Stephen in Kalispell, Montana, and Curtis in Billings, Montana. Who knew? We've got people in Montana that know we're here in Minnesota. Yeah. Who? So uh, we're doing this series, Back to the Basics, and it's something I've kind of had stirring for quite a while, and I guess God kind of moved me this fall, that it was time, because of all this transition and all this stuff that's going on in the world, let's not assume that we all share the same understanding of what it is that God has revealed as our history in the Bible. And so we're going back, and uh, all the way, went to back to the beginning, started Genesis one. Well, God's timing is always way better than our timing. I had this thing laid out last fall. But uh, it turns out that this message today about Moses, and that's the guy we're going to look at, it turns out that it's it's pretty appropriate for some things that happened in our state this past week. And so there's going to be a little bit of contemporary culture and a, and a little bit of biblical truth, and all of it is going to be to God's glory. And so here we go. i want to move fast. If you're taking notes, get ready to write. You ever been put in a position where you were asked to volunteer or do something or take a responsibility or maybe a job that you knew you weren't qualified for? You ever been asked to just go ahead, do it, kind of fake it, till you, make it, just go give it your best shot? We don't like to do that. It's not a comfortable feeling. We don't like that. If you know you're not the most qualified, it's pretty easy to say, "Go, go find somebody who's better, especially if it's something you don't really want to do. That's the guy we're going to meet today, Moses. He was called to something incredibly significant, but he didn't feel qualified at all. Remember where we left off last week, Exodus 1.8. It talks about there was a new king or a new pharaoh in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. A new king a few hundred years after Joseph's time came to power that didn't know what had happened while Joseph was king. He didn't even know his country's own history. And as a result, all of the family and all of the Israelites that had moved, a family of Joseph, excuse me, that had moved to, to Egypt, had grown in number. That had a few hundred years to have a few generations of children. And this new Pharaoh suddenly gets word. He realizes there's a lot of these people that are different from us. In fact, there's enough of them that if we're not careful, they could rise up against us with another army or even take us over themselves. So Pharaoh decides he's going to do something about it. We've got to we've got to get a hand on him and keep him under control. So the Bible says that he begins to enslave them and they become brutal slave masters. He he becomes so so insistent on these people not being able to rise to any sort of power that, that their slave masters are so brutal they start killing the adults but he goes, you know, this isn't fast enough. We've got to kill all the the babies. And so they also decide that the Egyptian midwives that helped the Israelite women give birth, he gives an order to them that you've got to end the life of any Hebrew baby that's born. You've got to just end it. That's the way he decides he's going to deal with this thing that he sees as a problem. It's into this Egypt that Moses is born. This is the background that this little baby is born into that he doesn't even know. A Hebrew baby born into this world where every baby boy is supposed to be killed. Well, his mom, she doesn't want that to happen, and so she hides him away for a while. Ultimately takes little baby Moses and puts him in a boat. Some Bible translations call it an ark. Don't think big ark, think little boat. And sets him afloat in the Nile River, which is interesting because where Pharaoh said those midwives should toss those baby boys is just into the Nile. And so probably with a whole lot of pain and anguish and a lot of prayer, she sets her son afloat. Turns out God had a plan for this infant who the governor said was supposed to die. God had his hand on Moses before Mo- Moses even knew that there was a God. Moses didn't die. And the fact is he's floating down the Nile that day. A lady spots him. And they go get this little boat that he's in. And it turns out that it's Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter says, you know what? I, I don't want to let anything happen. I'm going to take him home with me. She introduces him to dad, also known as the Pharaoh. He says, yeah, sure. You going to raise him at home. Moses, the baby that Pharaoh had said was supposed to die, ends up being a lost child that his daughter brings home, and he is raised in Pharaoh's house. Exodus 2.10 says he lived as Pharaoh's daughter's son. That made Moses, this little baby who was supposed to have been killed, a prince of Egypt, literally. He learned about God from his mother and his youth because she was allowed to stick around And then later it tells us in Acts, he learned how to be a leader from Pharaoh. Acts 7.22, Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was powerful in both speech and action. That's an interesting phrase because one of the things that Moses used as his excuse not to follow God's command was to say, I've got a speech impediment. Nobody understands me. I'm going to get up and I'm going to stutter and I'm going to stammer and it's going to just be embarrassing. I'm going to embarrass everybody, God. So this is the, the childhood that Moses has. Is he grows up in Pharaoh's house. And as he gets older, he spent 40 years in Egypt. As he gets older, he's out in the, watching the, the Israelite slaves at work. My guess is his heart has to be just torn. These are his people. How come it is that he's so fortunate and so blessed that he's not one of them? He sees an Egyptian slave master brutally beating one of the Israelite men. And anger burns in Moses. And he ends up looking around. There's nobody to see him. He kills this Egyptian slave master, buries him in the desert. And he realizes, well, this isn't good. Pharaoh's going to figure this out pretty soon. He's going to come after me. My special treatment is going to go away. And so what he does is he heads out north into the the desert of Midian, into the wilderness. He meets a man there, a prince of Midian. His name is Jethro. He ends up marrying Jethro's daughter. This begins 40 years living in the desert that Moses spends on the run from Egypt and the Pharaoh. See, God's hand has been on Moses from birth. He was raised in the home and he would return as an emissary to the home of Pharaoh. He learned firsthand from the man himself how it is that things worked in Pharaoh's palace. Then he had 40 years to think about these lessons and to grow in faith and to grow up in faith learning patience and shepherding while working with sheep. Little did Moses know at this time that it was through this same desert that he was going to travel shepherding a herd of two or three million Israelites not too far down the road. Mark 6:34, Jesus talks about us as people, as sheep, that we're looking for a shepherd, we're looking for someone to follow, that on our own we're just not going to do what we should do. And so it begs the question, will we follow where the shepherd leads us? That becomes a pretty timely thing in our world because the answer for an awful lot of people is no. So Moses is out. He's tending his father-in-law's sheep out in the wilderness. It's really in the desert. desert. And it says to us in Exodus 3, starting in verse 7, there's this passage 3-1 talking about how God is, is appearing to Moses through a burning bush. The bush is burning, but it isn't being consumed. And depending on your translation, it's kind of funny. Because Moses basically says, check that out. That bush is on fire, but it's not going anywhere. i got to go check that out. I must see, as in most translations. I must see. I don't think his English was that proper, but that's what he says. So as he gets closer, God sees him coming. The Lord said to him in verse 7, he says, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. God's talking about the promised land. But what's in that passage, the burning bush is amazing. God speaking to Moses, is, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. There's something that's in there that we need to pay attention to especially. And I want you to hear it again. Because if you feel like you're suffering, if you feel like you're in anguish, if you feel like you're without help, you're not alone. God hasn't abandoned you. See, your, your anguish doesn't go unheard. Your life is not ignored. God tells Moses, he sees, he hears, and he knows. He sees what's happening to the Israelites. He hears their cries, and he knows their situation. God understands the suffering of his people. God understands what it is that you're going through. And so what he decides is he tells you, through you, Moses, I'm going to I'm going to have people sent out. If Pharaoh's going to send the people out, and I'm going to bring you all to the promised land. And Moses hears and goes, uh-uh, I'm on the run. I'm not going back to Pharaoh because he'll certainly kill me. He tried to when I was little. He would have heard that story. But Moses knew firsthand how hard life was for the Israelites. That was why he killed somebody. He killed somebody because he was so brutal to one of his people. He'd been there. He, he had murdered this guy. And so, yeah, he knew life hadn't gotten any better. And then what happens, and I would encourage you to read, the entire book of Exodus is about Moses. I'd encourage you over the next few days just to read it. It is great, great history. What ends up happening is God tells Moses, you're the chosen instrument. You're the one that I'm going to use to go to Pharaoh and to send my people to the promised land. You're going to lead them. And Moses goes, uh-uh, not me, not going to do it. And there's this humorous debate. It's, a, it's almost a dialogue, but it's almost like Moses thinks he's going to win. And finally, he says, well, God, no one's going to listen to me. I've been on the run. I'm, a, I'm just a shepherd. I have no position, no authority. The Israelites aren't going to listen, much less Pharaoh. Who do I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. You think about that for a moment. Those might be the two most profound words to describe any living thing in history. I am. I am. You think about what you're going through and what you need. I am your hope. I am your salvation. I am your redeemer. I am your protector. I am your provider. God is all of these things. And it's just wrapped up in that simple statement, I am. There's really nothing else to be said. Moses kind of got it, but it was still lost on him a little bit because he sees himself and his shortcomings. He's a fugitive. He's a murderer. He's a, pu- a poor communicator. He's the last person that should stand in front of Pharaoh. And God says, don't worry about it. Just worry about the fact that I am. I am the one to give you the words. I am the one to give you the power. I am the one who even has authority over Pharaoh. So Moses realizes he's supposed to go to Pharaoh. He's supposed to stand in front of him, somehow get into the court, and demand that his private, free labor workforce of slaves is all going to be released and going to be sent to a land that has more hope and promise than Egypt itself. He knows there's no way that's going to happen, at least not on his own, because Moses, he's focused on his inability. God, however, is looking at the possibility. And that's what we need to remember when we're going through the stuff of our life, when we're we're going through the, the passages that seem like it's just darkness all around us, that we see only what can't be good. God sees where we're going. God sees where he's leading us. God sees the possibility. God sees what we can't even imagine. Then God tells him, he says, Moses, I'm going to show my power through you in a way that Pharaoh's not going to be able to deny. I'm going to show my power through you in a way that no one has ever seen before. God promises, God promises Moses that through these plagues that are going to be coming, Pharaoh is going to relent. And eventually, he says, he's going to send the Israelites off to the promised land with gold and silver and jewelry and clothing. And Moses is thinking, there's no way in the world That all of these slaves are going to be let go, much let go, with all of the best stuff that the Egyptians have to offer. Finally, in Exodus 4.4, after Moses continues to resist, the Bible says, The anger of the Lord burned against him. I don't want to be so obstinate that the anger of the Lord burns against me. I'm guessing you don't either. So God tells Moses one more time, go. And that shepherd's staff that you're so comfortable with, that shepherd's staff that you've gotten to know that's kind of kind of been your safety stick, I'm going to use that, that simple shepherd's staff, to show my power to you, to the Israelites, and to Pharaoh. That God is going to use it as a miracle-producing sign that God is with Moses. So finally, it gets down to this conversation. Well, I, I can't even do the talking. He says, I'll send your, your brother Aaron. All right, he'll do the talking, but you're the one that's got to go, Moses. Guess who won? God won. Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh, and not surprisingly, when they tell Pharaoh that they're here to ask him to release the Israelites and let them leave Egypt, Pharaoh looks at them, and in Exodus 5, 2, he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? i got to imagine, that was about the snarkiest comment that Pharaoh could have made. But there's a really important lesson in that for all of us. See, in this little corner of the world, in Pharaoh's part of the world, this little tiny piece of North Africa, Pharaoh was king. Pharaoh was everything. Pharaoh was a small G God. That's what he told his people, and that's what he believed. He was in charge. He gave the orders. When he said it was time for someone to die, somebody died. But what Moses and Aaron knew, and Pharaoh would soon find out, that there really is a God, capital G, creator author of life, heavenly father. And he actually has all the power and all the authority and all the control over all of the world, including Pharaoh. Over everything. And all these years later, we live in this world that people think because of their money or their position or their title or whatever, you can fill in the blank, that they don't need to believe in God or fear or obey him. As with Pharaoh, they're going to learn a very personal, very painful lesson one day because of that arrogance. Because the Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Seems almost impossible when you think of this task before Moses in front of Pharaoh. But God's a promise keeper. Exodus 7 uh, verses 3 and 4 gives us a prophetic word from God himself. He says, I will make Pharaoh's heart hard so I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. God will make Pharaoh's heart hard so that God can be glorified. Even then, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. He's telling Moses, this isn't going to be easy. This guy isn't going to go down fast. So I'll bring down my fist on Egypt. I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is speaking a prophecy, which we know is a promise. So what happens is this ever-increasing rebellion. Every time Moses goes to Pharaoh and asks to let God's people go, Pharaoh continues to rebel and get more and more obstinate. It ends up that Pharaoh starts hardening his heart. He doesn't care the result. He is not going to let it go. Now he's fighting against God. It ends up that nine plagues are visited on the land of Egypt. The land is decimated. The well-being of people of Egypt is decimated. Their economy disappears. Finally, in the end, an unrepentant Pharaoh, the Bible says, has his heart hardened by God. God says, you know what? And he talks about this in the New Testament. Finally, God says, I'm going to give them over to whatever they want. Pharaoh wants to fight. He gets a fight. Pharaoh wants an unrepentant, sinful heart. He can have it. What Pharaoh wanted was life apart and separated from God There's no hope, but Pharaoh wanted to be in power. That still happens today. When we refuse to listen to God, our hearts become hardened. told you this is not just a history lesson, but a, a culturally relevant lesson. This is happening today. I watched it. The enemy of God has drawn a new battle line. And you know what? If you haven't been paying attention to the news, Minnesota is headline news all over the world. I've been able to make some friends over the years across uh, the country and in different parts of the world, and I go to where they go to for their news, and we're on the front page. And it's heartbreaking. I don't know about you, but Thursday night I listened to the proceedings of the Minnesota House of Representatives. I wanted to hear the entire process. I wanted to hear from opening, which took a long time to get started, all the way through to vote. I watched the whole thing. I listened to every single person who spoke. Because at at stake was a vote to pass the most comprehensively permissive, essentially without check or balance or oversight, law that permits abortion at any point in a pregnancy for any woman of any age, without really any record keeping, including up to and after the moment of birth. Because one of the people asked the author to clarify and to define these things, and it was all in the affirmative. Yeah, that's what it's about. And as I'm listening to this, I hear some passionate voices imploring those people who are in favor of this to truly consider the consequences of their actions. I heard them imploring others to hear God's love and God's truth in the face of not just passing passing the nations, but the world's most permissive abortion legislation ever. But they gave equal time to both sides of the aisle. And then I heard speaker after speaker who was in favor of this law That would, in their words, enshrine, and that word kept being repeated, enshrine abortion access for everyone forever in Minnesota. Those men and women I can only describe as spoke with hardened hearts. Some of them were angry. Some of of them were were passionately, seemed to be upset almost, but they knew they were going to win. I could only describe them as hardened hearts that had been severed from the reality of what they were demanding in the name of safe science and medical care and, and free choice, and God allows their hearts to be hardened, but just like with the nation of israel or nation of Egypt, see those other people that lived there they, they didn 't fight God, Pharaoh did, but the entire nation fell under god 's judgment, just like Pharaoh stood under god 's judgment for his nation, Hardened hearts leads to Leads to devastating consequences. And we will stand in judgment for that decision of our elected officials. I've said this before. I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but what I'm going to say is your vote matters. And on Thursday, I saw to what devastating and deadly effects it matters. And and this law, this new law that is going to be the law of Minnesota, it does not honor God, and it does not honor God's will for us. So after nine plagues in Egypt... Nine plagues that wipe out about everything that you can imagine. God gives instructions to Moses to inform the Israelites of a time of worship and a time of sacrifice. We've come to know this as the Passover. It's where God is calling the people to put their faith in God and prepare for the journey that's ahead. And when they do, they're going to sacrifice a lamb and they're going to spread the blood over the doorposts of their homes in Egypt. Because God was about to release the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. And in the tenth and final plague, an angel of death was going to visit Egypt, and all the firstborn of the Egyptian people and all of their livestock was going to be killed. All of the firstborn of the people and livestock. The only ones in the entire nation that would be passed over would be the Israelites with lamb's blood over their doors. The the celebration of Passover is still occurring today with the Jewish people where we see the shed blood of the Lamb literally providing protection, salvation, and life to the people of God. All the way back to the time that they were in Egypt. In Exodus 12, we read that that night Pharaoh was awakened to a cry of anguish he had never heard before that echoed throughout the land because not a single household in Egypt was there someone or some animal who was not dead. Pharaoh had never heard that kind of cry before. And so he sends for Moses and Aaron. And he says, gather up your people and your animals and your possessions and leave. Just go. Go to the place that your Lord is calling you to. And oh, by the way, would you bless me on your way out? It's like a ridiculous afterthought. This guy who absolutely refuses to believe in God and to follow him because God has no authority, says... Yeah, I've seen what he's capable of. Would he bless me, please? It's kind of like people who deny God with word and action get to a point in their life where they've got nowhere else to turn. And what do they do? Pray to a God they say they don't even believe in. That's what's happening to Pharaoh. Bless me also, he says. Then in Exodus 12:35, the Israelites do exactly what Moses commanded them to do, exactly what God said would happen. They ask their Egyptian captors, very nicely, I'm sure, For silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Egyptians couldn't have been happier to give it to them. Now, if you've read or studied or watched anything about ancient Egypt, they loved gold. They loved jewelry. They loved fine clothing. All of it went with the Israelites when they left Egypt and went north. Some translations talk about the plunder of Egypt. Others talk about the wealth of Egypt. But the point is, those people left with the very best of the finances of that country. And so some two to three millions, Bible doesn't tell us tells how many men, so people assume two to three million Israelites, leave Egypt on what should have been this awesome, fun, kind of crazy celebration of a two-month journey to the promised land. And if you've read the story, you know how funny that is because it's a little bit like Gilligan's Island. The distance was two months worth, a little bit less actually. In reality, it was 40 years. It wasn't because they didn't know where to go. It's because they quit paying attention. It wasn't because God didn't provide leadership to them. It's because they didn't want the leadership they were given. It isn't because they didn't know what the plan was or the purpose or their future was. It's because they didn't want it. They didn't like the day they were in. So God leads them out with this pillar of cloud by day and a a fire by night. So they know exactly where God is leading them until they decide they don't want to pay attention anymore. Exodus 16, we read this passage about them coming to the Red Sea and the God God reparts the Red Sea because Pharaoh and his army are in hot pursuit. Got to imagine he was pretty upset that he let all these people go, realizing we're not going to get anything built. My people haven't had to do any labor in hundreds of years. The only people that are willing to work is the ones we force them to work. Let's go get them back. So Pharaoh and his army take off and the Red Sea parts and the Israelites pass through and the waters come back and recede into the, into the sea And Pharaoh and his army is washed up, swallowed by the water. And the next thing in Exodus 16, they make it to the wilderness of Shin. When you look in your Bible, it's it's spelled S-I-N. It's pronounced Shin. Kind of interesting if you're a Hebrew reader, or an English reader rather, because they're complaining to Moses and to God about how much they miss their life in Egypt. They're complaining about how much they miss being slaves. They're complaining and whining that life is so hard in the desert on the way to the promised land where God provides us with food every morning and every night. We don't have to do anything but pick it up off the ground. Oh, do we wish we were back in Egypt. They're remembering their miserable lives as slaves as though it was better than the promise that God was leading them into. And so what do they do? They begin to turn on Moses and they begin to turn on God. And it's so easy for us to complain about the moment that we're in that we forget that God is actually carrying us through this moment and preparing us for the future. We're often no different. We want what we want, and we want it now. Waiting for a promise can take some time, and we're impatient people. So God provides them with manna, which is like a thin bread in the morning. It's on the ground. They pick it up. They've got enough to eat for the day. But God says, don't take any more than that. Trust me. I'm going to provide for you. At night, there's quail. They've got enough food every day. Uh, On Fridays, they would collect a double portion so they had something on Saturday, which is their Sabbath. That way they wouldn't have to work. And despite God providing all of that, they continued to whine and complain. And yet God continues to provide for them and to protect them. And it's easy for us to complain about the situation that we're in. I hate what's going on. I can't believe that's happened. I didn't deserve it. It isn't fair. You know what? God has you in that place for a purpose and a reason, and He will carry you through. So this time in the desert then leads him to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where Moses was told by God to go meet him, and he was given the Ten Commandments. In their more simple form, the Ten Commandments are God's rules or laws or guidelines? For healthy and productive and respectful relationships between people and God and for us together with each other. It's as simple as that. If you read through the Ten Commandments, and I encourage you to do that, all that they are is about respectful, healthy relationships. That's it. But the people didn't want that. The people didn't want that at all. They wanted not didn't want God's laws. They wanted their own laws. They wanted to set their own rules. They wanted to follow their own lead. They wanted to take care of what they thought was this horrible situation by themselves. So they get together, they gather up all the gold, and they melt it all down, and they make a golden calf. Interesting thing to choose because so many of the cultures around them worshipped their false god, Baal, who was a bull. They make a golden calf. They want to worship that instead of God. They make an idol in their own image of their own liking. They they make the shrine for them to worship even though God had told them this is how you worship while you're in the desert. They turn from God and they choose to worship their own desires, their own sinful nature and a creature that they crafted on their own. See, God gives us the Ten Commandments still to this day so that we can stand out as different as God's people from the world around us. It's never been more important than it is right now. Ten Commandments like no idol, idols, no other gods, and oh, yeah, don't murder. And yet here we are in Minnesota. The Ten Commandments define what is healthy, respectful relationship. And this stuff is more real in our world today than it's ever been, which is why it is taking such a shot from people who want to live their own life. Our world hates, literally hates anybody who will stand for Jesus and stand against the agendas and the ideologies and the schemes of this world, their plans, all of it. To speak out for the name of Jesus suddenly we labeled intolerant, we're labeled haters, that we're not good people, that we're the problem. I don't understand, I guess, to be honest, to want more for people than to give in to an agenda of multiple genders and surgical mutilation, how does that make us intolerant? It means that we actually believe that there is a power in this world greater than us, and that power is called God. Don't fall to that pressure. We've said this for years, but it's got an interesting new meaning to it now. Love Jesus. Love people. Teach people to love Jesus. It's not popular. But you know what? When someone goes from hating the gospel and hating Jesus to meeting Jesus and falling in love with Him, they're going to thank you. I found it very telling on Thursday night that politician after politician that spoke in favor of this new law that they want passed in Minnesota talked about enshrining abortion. That's the phrase they used, enshrining. And I realized that this, this willful termination where this, this child should be in the safest place on earth inside its mother's body. Suddenly, they've declared that to be a war zone if the mom wants it to be. And I don't think that they realized what they were actually saying as I was listening to them. They're boldly standing in front of everybody by talking about enshrining abortion. That abortion had become their idol. Abortion is the God they will serve. And abortion is the price they will pay. See, your political opinions are no excuse for denying God's will or God's word. Just for the record, there's nothing new about this. The Mayans, the Aztecs, the Incans, the Egyptians, the Druids, the Canaanites with their bull god all enshrined some version of child sacrifice as a practice to be worshipped and celebrated. And just as a note of historical order, not one of those cultures has survived. You can't kill your children and survive as a people. We actually have stricter laws in the state of Minnesota now to protect pets and animals than we do unborn children. So it turns out after 40 years of wandering, after what should have been less than two months, God sends some people into the promised land to scout it out. Two of them come back and they see the possibility. They trust in God's promise. It ends up that only two of those people who had started this journey 40 years ago Only two of them had been a part of the generation that had been enslaved in Egypt. Everyone that entered the promised land had been born on this wilderness journey of 40 years. An entirely new generation of Israelites took possession of the land that God had promised. It took 40 years, but God kept his promise. And the two faithful men joined them. One of them was named Joshua. One of them was Caleb. Joshua ends up taking over as the leader after Moses. We're going to pick up with him next Sunday. But here's the thing that's important for us. God does not have a history of calling the obvious people to the difficult tasks. That's not God's history at all. It's not calling into his service the ones that we would consider to be most most qualified. Think about Joseph. His, His brothers dismissed him and sold him off. Moses had every excuse imaginable. He was put in a river and left for dead. It was just a wing and a prayer that his mom had to go on. God doesn't take the obvious. Maybe that list goes on all the way to you and to me, but here's the thing. God doesn't look at the things that we look at. God looks at a man or a woman's heart. God looks at who he knows us to be, not who we pretend to be and not who people say that we are. God looks at who we really are. God has this long history of not calling the qualified, but of qualifying the called. See, the thing is, God's not limited by your ability. Only you and I are. God's not asking for our abilities. God's asking for our availability. It doesn't matter what your resume says. It's a matter of what your heart says. If you feel like you're struggling, if you feel like you're calling out to God, if you feel like you're a dead end or you're in the bottom of a pit, you don't know the purpose of your life, you're not sure where tomorrow's going to come from, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, your finances are in craziness, you can't find a job, whatever it is, if you're crying out to God in despair or mourning or pain or fear, God hears you. God sees you and God knows what you're facing, it can be the most dire and gloomy medical diagnosis the world's ever heard. It's not a surprise to God. Just like with the Israelites, God is with you. And what he asks us to do is to trust him and to follow. He will provide. He will make a way. So what we're doing is we're not just studying, looking at these characters from years and years ago. We're not just studying history. We're studying our story. We're studying God's story at work. You're wandering. Maybe you thought you were heading off onto a Gilligan's Islands cruise for a couple days. Maybe your wandering has turned into a 40-year trip through the desert, but you're not alone because that God who makes and keeps his promises has a better day, a better life, a better future in store for you. God is a God who makes promises and who keeps them. And what he asks us to do is to be patient, to grow in our faith, and to be faithful to Him. And when we do that, He carries us through and He gets us to the place that He has us on this journey to be. Maybe you've begun it and you're starting it now. Maybe you've been there for a while. Maybe you can't even imagine where it is. But the point is, God hears you, God sees you, and God knows what you're going through. You are not alone. Don't look for help for somewhere else. It'll all be empty. Look for help from the one who created you and gave you life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story of Moses. I think a lot of us can relate to him in ways that aren't so shining. We have a tendency to say, not me. Maybe it's with helping somebody who is in need that we don't have time for. Maybe it's in helping out or volunteering for something at church. Maybe it's in giving more than what we feel comfortable for. God, whatever it is, we need to know and to understand that we are here because you brought us here. We are at this place in life, whether we happen to like it, whether it happens to hurt, whether it happens to be sad or joyous. We're at this place and we're not alone. You're with us. You hear us, you see us, and you know what we're going through. And God, you're you're not going to push us to do something that we can't do, but you may push us to do something that isn't comfortable. That's how we grow. That's how we show that our faith is in you, not in us. And God, we show you that so many ways. in the things that we say yes to and we say no to, the things that we take a stand for when the world tells us that we're intolerant, the times that we offer a help or something to someone that we don't think that we have time or space or resources for, the time that we give when we feel like we can't afford. God, we want to be people whose faith is in you who trust you to carry us through whatever that we're, whatever it is that we're going through. Not in us and in, in the ways of this world, because our own minds, our own wills in this world are going to do nothing but drive us from you. God, we want to live always moving toward you. In Jesus' name, amen.